Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with Canadian jazz saxophonist and educator Christine Jensen. Over the course of our conversation, she talked about growing up in the same town that Diana Krall did, gigging with her sister, trumpeter Ingrid Jensen, what has been going on lately in a very busy and packed schedule, why she loves jazz, and what her teaching philosophy is, along with many more surprises. Please dig this interview, my friends. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for taking some time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. No problem. I'm going to start off here and ask, what has been going on with you lately? Wow, a lot of finishes and starts in my life, I guess. I toured my second big band recording all summer in Canada and the U.S., and that was a pretty major undertaking with 20 musicians. And then went into the studio to record with Ben Monder and my sister Ingrid Jensen on trumpet. And now I am currently working quite a lot at McGill University teaching composition heading into some other concerts coming up. Before I stray too far here, talk to me about your sister, what it's like to perform with her, and how often do you perform with her? There can be some times where we don't see each other for very very much, but in general, every month we get together and we have some sort of concert we're working on together or gig somewhere in the world that we meet up at. Sometimes that we actually don't meet in each other's cities, but we meet everywhere else. <laughs> Yeah. While we're touring. So let me talk to you about, you were you were born in British Columbia and raised in, is it Nanaimo? Nanaimo, BC. Nanaimo. What was it like to grow up in that area? It, and it mentions that there are some really big jazz musicians that are from the same area like Phil Dwyer and Diana Krall. What, what was it like to grow up there? Oh, it was exactly that. I mean, I, I grew up behind them, so like three or four years behind those two players, and it was actually very inspiring to watch their careers take off at young ages, and I think it just made it seem not like so far off in the distant future that I would be able to probably pursue the sounds that they were pursuing. I mean, it just made so much sense to be thinking about rhythm sections that swing and all these things that happened because because the the talent that was in Nanaimo was drawing in some major players to accompany them at times. So it was really fun that way. What was it like about that area that lent you and lent these musicians to appreciate music? Was there something about the scene, and what was it, what, what what do you think it was? Well, first of all, um, probably it started in my own home with our mother Ingrid and I had a we have a had a mother that was full of uh, sounds with listening to music by piano players and then by big bands and also classical music. So we heard a lot of piano trio in the house from Oscar Peterson to George Shearing to Marion McPartland. It was always on around us. It was her favorite music to unwind to. And then on top of that, we had really some great music teachers that were also players and they liked to have jams and have a scene happening around us in a pretty small place that was disconnected from the mainland actually. So that part was really neat. When you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? <laughs> I thought I would be a music teacher actually. <laughs> um and I I don't know if that's still true or not, but um more so I am into creating music and creating projects that reflect a certain point in my life that I'm working on 
and then on top of that, I get to, I guess, pontificate about what I, what I, what I do and how I do it. So it's there, but I also thought, well, I'll be, I'm going to play piano or I'm going to play saxophone. I, I was especially drawn to the piano for a long time, though, watching a saxophone. Well, yeah, and that was what I was going to ask. Why did you eventually land on the sax? Why is that the instrument of choice for you? Well, my sisters, <laughs> one sister got the trumpet and one sister got the trombone, and they they kind of decided for me that I would be playing saxophones when I when it came time to choose an instrument in grade six. Moving on from there, I, I was sort of off and on the saxophone. I had really good teachers. But I, I still really, I think I wanted to break the code of what, what jazz was through the piano and the saxophone. So I finally figured out how to do voicings and and tied all my sort of classical technique together with jazz. And then I went, okay, now I understand how what it means to be an incredible piano player. And uh, I think to find a unique voice, I'm going to actually pursue the saxophone. And it took me a long time to figure that out. But it was intimidating a bit to listen to people like Bill Evans and Oscar Peterson and their absolute fluency on their instruments, which is a common instrument and finding their own sound. And I just found on the saxophone that I equally had as much fun working on that. And to this day, I'm still working on it, just trying to find my own voice. What do you think that voice is? You know, Miles Davis said it took a long time for him to find his inner voice. And what do you think your voice is when you're on stage? Really, the voice for me comes through the music I choose to play, and I have the freedom to do that as a as a jazz musician. And also just combining all the practicing through the years or days or hours. I mean, it, it comes into a moment when you're on stage, and hopefully it's reflected in my performance that I've been you know, honing my skills on this instrument, but also adding my own voice, which will be the artistry to the instrument for me. Talk to me a little bit, a little bit about your education. McGill University, you graduated in jazz performance in '94, and they got your master's in 2006. What has been the biggest benefits for you being in a classroom learning about jazz? I think it's the classroom. Unfortunate, it's fortunate and unfortunate, but it's kind of becoming the new utopian community for musicians to meet and to create their community. And I think my, my big band albums really reflect it because a lot of the musicians on those albums I worked with since being at McGill, it's really uh, an intense environment. It's definitely becoming more elite and more of an establishment of where, so I, I'm not going to say all jazz, but a lot of jazz musicians are able to find their ground and, figure out how to navigate this crazy world of music that we're in right now. It's a safe place to be, but also it's a place of opportunity, which, you know, I'd love to have lived on 42nd Street with Charlie Parker. That was another place of opportunity back then, but it's, yeah. it's definitely changing that way. So there, there are those things and also just a learning environment and and combining a lot of classical techniques with jazz now, especially in composition, which I also feel that great leaders in this music uh, that are contemporary players are generally composers as well now in jazz. You know, we don't we don't all get to just 
play a bunch of standards on a record these days and, and, and start our career that way. We have to actually come up with a very new spin on things. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Charlie, you know, and he obviously put a very new spin on things with bebop and what he brought to the world, but he was also very much so a student of the classical music. What do you think that yeah. does? What do you think that does for the jazz brain to be kind of keyed into the classical side of things as well? I think it's important in the evolution of this music. I mean, you look at the top, some of the top players right now, which include VJ Iyer and um, some other really interesting points of view on the music, yet also presenting some heartfelt music as well. And to combine those two things is very another very difficult balance to figure out and. I think, you know, Charlie Parker's music probably didn't exactly make everyone happy when they first heard it, but eventually it became part of our language, and I think it's the same now with these new players and composers. So the one thing about your education is that you were kind of under the uh, tutelage of Pat LaBarbera, Kenny Warner, Jim McNeely, Dick Oates, and Steve Wilson. What was it like to learn from folks that had so many years, uh, so many mileage, so much mileage on their car at that point and just being such big shots in the game. What did you learn from them? Oh, each one, you know, it's an, in, I, I can't say I spent years with any of them, but I took lessons with all of them. And especially Pat, I see him, you know, every couple of years and it all goes back to me. He, he was a master of teaching the instrument of the saxophone of playing jazz. Um, they all, each of those, players you mentioned have a different take on the approach to their instrument and the approach to their music all of them that's what they've taught me is is this incredible i mean if you're going to be a musician you have to be incredibly 100 percent into what you're doing and if you have any doubts or any questions about the whole idea of this being your career you might want to look around at some other options because it's really Spending time with yourself and being honest with your your sound and creating your sound and working on your sound, which includes your technique and your everything, to move forward with the music and and hopefully, as I said, present your own voice in the music through your playing and your writing. So, are you still are you in Montreal? Yeah. Okay. All I ever hear about Montreal is kind of it's such a beautiful, magical city. How does living in an environment like that lend to you and your creativity? Well, it's a smaller city. It's not too far from New York. And we get a lot of New York players up here, actually, which helps, I think, uh, presenting new points of view and inspiring us musicians. Also, there's a Canadian scene that kind of, it, it used to be a little stronger, but because of the sort of dissolution of sort of uh, just the the way we can tour or the way we can hear each other on the radio it's a little bit dissolved these days or even just labels being very supportive of getting the music out there so everything's become a little uh, a little more localized in a way but also refined and it's a smaller scene like i said but the the schools really help there's french schools and english schools here of that are universities that produce really uh an interesting scene that goes into free and music actuelle, or you can go into fusion. Um, and everyone's a little tapped in on, on also 
the global scene as well because it's a bit of a mosaic in not just Canada but especially in Toronto and Montreal we have a lot of Latin scenes fused in like through Cuba and Haiti and going into Colombia and Peru I'm actually meeting more and more of these musicians as well so it's pretty interesting so it, it says in your bio that you're at home performing in either small or large ensembles what is that difference of of size mean for you and the way you interact with them? There's a very big difference, actually. <laughs> I, I like to think of it as my yin and yang. I just went through a huge amount of yang <laughs> with the large ensemble, which is standing in front of a group of musicians and having quite a lot of control over the sort of development or evolution of a story with a piece. It's it's a lot more coming from the composer, and then with small group, I find it's the opposite, where I get to actually just be in the moment, playing the music uh, at a much larger amount of time spent playing rather than thinking in sort of about the development on the paper. So there's not as much paper actually playing small group, and I really get to be more of a performer with my instrument than with large ensemble, where I'm I might play some solos, but overall, I'm thinking about having a form evolve in front of me that tells a story coming from my perspective, I guess, whereas small group, the the whole group kind of gets to tell all their own stories Yeah. equally. Well, and it seems like things have worked out really well with uh, you won a 2011 Juno Award for Contemporary Jazz Album of the Year, and yeah. uh, you got Quebec's Opus Award. What is it like to to have the industry recognize you for for doing what you do? It's always a, a bit of a surprise, <laughs> I guess. Um, I, I was really happy, actually, more so with the fact that my music got across the border and into the United States a little bit more, especially um, not that I want universities to be the only ones interested, but it, there seems to be a lot of interest, again, on the more arranged and and orchestrated music that I do in the universities because it gives them the option of playing my music as well. So that was really neat and just the attention I got from the the media in the states from those two albums it kind of uh, definitely was a bit surprising but also very rewarding to to feel that. And in Canada it's great too. I mean, it it's a really small country. <laughs> compared to the States. So to uh, be able to just, you know, it's a stretched out small country. So getting your music from point A to point B can be just as challenging here. Well, I can say from the home of Charlie Parker here in Kansas City, we're pretty good about spending <laughs> a lot of Canadian jazz artists. And I'm wondering, because I know I really kind of have gotten involved with the Canadian jazz scene because of the internet. Do you see that in this day and era with the, the, the ease and access to the Internet, that things have gotten exposure, has gotten a little bit more widespread, or, or what do you think it is? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I mean, the whole it's very hard to describe. Like 20 years ago, everything was so controlled by the labels, how you got to hear the music. You know, you went to the record store and you got to hear the CD spinning on the stand and then you got to go to the club and hear the band play. And now it's more, it, there's just so much choice out there for us to to figure out what we want to do. And, but it all breaks down to 
the community around you and what it's supporting. So gave to Kansas City for that because it sounds like, you know, you're able to check out the world from where you are. And I do think that's happening a little more through podcasts and through through the Internet and through CD Baby and all these things. Yeah, making everything a little bit more of a global yeah. village of jazz goods. So let me ask you this. As a clinician and an instructor at McGill and just being a teacher, Tell me what your philosophy is on teaching jazz. Um, well, that's a that's a loaded question, but I think uh, it comes back to some of the things I've mentioned before about if you really really want it, you are going to dedicate your life to this music, and in order to do that, I am there to help facilitate as much as I can. Um, Maybe I offer my own unique point of view. I'm not really an educator first. I'm more of a musician that is able to hopefully get my thoughts out to my students in a way that inspires them to move forward. And that generally just means listening to a lot of music and not just jazz. I'm trying to emulate and then trying to, hopefully the emulation turns into their own voice. So you've all obviously had really good teachers in your life. Who would you say is Yeah, I've had too many. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a good problem to have. Yeah, it's a good problem. Who has been the most profound teacher in your life? I would say my first saxophone teacher was someone who was knocking on my very thick skull uh, at the time about what I need to work on and practice and and become disciplined with because it really comes down to the beginnings being very disciplined in uh, just getting around your instrument. And once you've finished that, you have a bit more freedom to explore and create. I, I, aside from my first teacher, Steve Jones, I would say Jim McNeely is a rocking influence on me because of his way of uh, teaching me how to tell a story with my music which I don't think I understood exactly until I had some lessons with him. Yeah. And then these other saxophone players, they're all amazing. Dick Oates, just amazing. Yeah. Talk about uh, the the sort of successor to, on the alto saxophone to taking it to another level. But I would say Dick is one of the greatest alto players living right now. The one question I was going to ask you was, is there an album, a jazz album that you listen to that really kind of part of the curtains for you. But in your bio, you say you were freaked out over Oscar Peterson and Bill mm-hmm. Evans. They gave you kind of an epiphany as a teenager. Talk to me about what those two did. And if, was there an album or was it just their body of work? It probably was an album, actually. Actually, with Bill Evans, this is the weird thing. When it, as a child, well, I was probably 1981, it, that was near the end of Bill's career. And my sister brought him the album, We Will Meet Again, which had her favorite trumpet player at the time, Tom Harrell, on it. And for me, I was just blown away by that album with the absolute lyricism of each track and also the kind of sound from that unique blend of musicians because it was actually a quintet recording. And it drew me into all of Bill's library right away and his mastery of the, the sort of traditional songbook repertoire and what he did with it. So that album, for sure, um, kind of a turning point for me was after university hearing Ellis and Tom, the Joe Beam record, 
Th- yeah. Those are two really big albums for me. On this track of nostalgia here with all of these artists and albums, if you could go back in time and you had a time machine and you could go see an artist at a venue, where would you go and who would you see? Oh, that's a tough one. I got to see Miles before he died, and I got to see... I would probably like to maybe hear... Gosh, that's tough. Uh, probably I would go back to 42nd Street and hear Charlie Parker playing something crazy on one of those in one of those clubs, you know, just yeah, just throwing down. Um, or possibly also being able to spy on Gil Evans with his orchestra. He used to play at Sweet Basil all the time. I wish I could have heard some of that. I get kind of bespeckled by that with 18 and Vine when I go down there and see kind of the landscape of where the clubs used to be. Just to be a fly on the wall at one of those would be amazing. Um, yeah, it's funny how New York shifts around. And I've been very lucky to hear some. My sister and I used to go to Bradley's when I was still in first year university. I got to hear Michelle Petrucciani throw down, you know, with the piano players that would all line up and just play. And I'm like, I just thought every piano player was amazing. So let me ask you this. What is the greatest thing about waking up every day for you? <laughs> that I don't, you know, I, I have a sweet little passion of listening to Rush Hour on the radio and having them describe the traffic and I go, <laughs> in general, I really don't have anything to do with this. I have no powers over it. I don't have to be in it in general. Um, I'm a short, short metro to, to work when I do go to work and, uh, that part, and also just being able to get on airplanes and see some crazy parts of the world. That's really fun. And sharing my music with with anyone that's interested. It's, that's the best part of my part of my day. And it is crazy how I get people from all over the world writing me about my music. So it's great. So speaking of fans, what was it like when you gave your autograph out for the first time? Oh, I don't know. I don't know if I do that so much. I would say we were in Japan. My sister and I went in the nineties, and it was just so outrageous how how fan crazy they are there about everything. So that was probably one of the only times where I've had that. Can I have your autograph? I get it sometimes with different festivals where it's kind of the thing. People come around with the programs and say, "Can I have your autograph?" I'm like, can I talk to you? I never, <laughs> I never really talked to that many people. So you want my autograph? Let's talk. Yeah, kind of thing. That's cool. Why do you love jazz? I love the freedom of jazz. I think it's you know the other two areas I would have gone into would have been probably classical music or pop music, which I both love them both dearly. But both of them have a very strict regime on the stage where the the music really you rehearse it and rehearse it and rehearse it and you execute it perfectly and that's the music it's already done whereas in jazz we get to go on stage and every time it's like man where is it going to take us tonight what is the musicians that i'm communicating with where is our communication going to go sometimes it can be really bad sometimes it can be amazing so a lot of people as you go through life you have your perception of who you are Your sister has her perception of who you are. Your fans have their perception of who you are. 
tell me who you think you are. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh dear. Um I don't I don't know who I am. That's why I'm doing this. Um honestly, I feel like every you know, I I'm not putting out recordings every year. It's taken me every two or three years to to do an album of works and then it, it you know, it, it goes through stages. You're I'm always going through stages. And within those stages, I'm also having to deal with how much time I have left with each stage. So sometimes I have to compose really fast. Sometimes I have to compose really slow. Um, I have a five-year-old daughter now, and that means that half my life is spent with her now, at least, because that's what I've chosen to add to my life. So now everything is changing all the time. And probably, you know, how I think people think of me or my music Probably they think it's it's a little easy, but it's actually really hard <laughs> to do some things that I do, and uh, I think that that part of it is a challenge. You just have to be organized. Unfortunately, that's one common thing between my life and anyone else's life is how organized you are, whether you're a musician or not. Absolutely. So let's say we talk in 20 years from now, and <laughs> I ask you first question. What's been going on? What are you going to want to tell me has happened? Gosh, in 20 years? I hope I'm still doing what I'm doing. Um, I hope that my circle gets even wider with experiences I have with with other musicians especially, whether it be outside of what we call jazz. Hopefully jazz will have either established or changed itself into another word because it's getting pretty complex to describe. And um, maybe I'll have a house with one extra room now so that I can <laughs> shut the door and, and be alone with my thoughts a little more easily. But that, aside from that, I, I don't know if anything should change that much. I'm very happy um, with where I'm at musically, playing even more. That's all. That's cool. Yeah, perfect. Christine, thank you for your time. Thank you for opening up about your career. I really appreciate it. Thanks for your really honest and prolific questions. <laughs> thank you. I'll go I'll go answer them completely differently next time. <laughs> you have 20 years to fetter it out. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, Canada, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Christine for her music and her time. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.